May I say that I have not thoroughly enjoyed serving with humans. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out! Freak! You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome, listeners, to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. This is David Grubbs, uh, teaching assistant at the University of Georgia and uh, current refugee in Dogmas Johnny Evans' office. With me this week is Michael Farmer, uh, adjunct instructor of, of uh, English at, where is it again? Tallahassee Community College, and I'm actually an, uh, an adjunct instructor of reading and writing. Ah, uh, reading and writing. Okay. It's uh, um, it's under it's developmental, so it's not in the English department. Okay, uh, not with us this week um, is Nathan Nathan Gilmore. He was uh, unavoidably detained, um, so uh, th- that means uh, two things: first, that uh, you're stuck with the soulless Calvinists, and second, um, this is a decimal episode. Um. Also, it means we're not going to be able to do what we were supposed to do this week because Nathan was going to lead it. So next week, um, we should have Nathan's classical music episode, and then there'll be two weeks where there either is there'll be a podcast one week that's me and uh, David and a uh, guest guest host, and then I think Thanksgiving week we probably won't have one, and then we'll come back and complete the music trilogy after Thanksgiving with my Christian rock episode. Well, I'm looking forward to that and also looking forward to, uh, well, the conversation with your friend Carla and also uh, the, the the classical music episode. I am, uh, got to say, I'm, I'm, di- I'm disappointed we're not talking Bach this week, but uh, this is not not Nathan's fault. And uh, so, so listeners, please squelch your disappointment as I squelch mine. It, we're not talking Bach, but we are talking back, as it turns out. <laughs> what are we talking back to, Michael? <laughs> well, uh, last week, um, as, our, as our listeners probably know, we talked about church music, and we came down fairly strongly, all three of us, uh, probably I came down the strongest, uh, all, all three of us came down fairly strongly that the purpose of church music um, is to impart doctrine more than it is to stir up emotions. Now, this has caused a certain amount of controversy. I figured it would. Um, Our friends over at the CWC, for example, um, talked about this for about 10 minutes on their show last week. Um, They pointed out that both David and I are Calvinists, and they are, I believe, uh, all some degree of pietist, and they pointed out that the, the difference between Emotion and doctrine may be a difference between pietism and Calvinism. I think that's 
perceptive. I, I think that's largely true, and we will get to that in a in a few minutes. Um, we also forgive me. I've I've forgotten his name. One of I, I believe Nathan's friends named Joseph. Uh, has engaged me in a long uh, comment thread argument about emotion and worship, which you can view on our web uh, website if you are so inclined. Um, we will also be dealing with some of those issues today. So this is a uh, church music radix, and you'll have to uh, you'll have to forgive us. We are much less prepared than we normally are because we didn't realize we'd be doing this until eight or nine this morning, and we're recording at. Uh, 3:30 in the uh, in the afternoon. So usually we have a full week to think of questions and to uh, come up with preliminary answers. Today we had just a few hours. So if we are stumbling a little bit, that's why. Plus David and I hate each other and don't have any chemistry. Well, and it, and we're always much less polished when we lack the Gilmore Spretzichira and ability to you know address pretty much everything that's thrown at him. It's true. Uh, you know, it's we're, true. We're, we're kind of limping along without our emotional crutch. Well, we were uh, uh, we were trying to come up with topics David and I could both discuss um, <laughs> for the week. Nathan won't be here, and and it was uh, it was slim pickings, I'll tell you. Uh, not David slim, and I have almost not nothing actual in common academically. What's that? Not actual slim pickings. Uh, no, no, metaphorical slim pickings. Okay, all right. Um. So yeah, dear listener, I encourage you to. Uh, check out the blog and uh, the the comment thread that uh, that that has result resulted, and also um, uh, a post that you put up, Michael, uh, on emotion and worship, which is actually the title. Um, in in response to the various uh, kinds of feedback that we've gotten back on this issue, um, just to clarify my point a little bit, because. Um... We didn't breeze over it by any means on last week's podcast, but we didn't get to devote the amount of time that that topic really deserves. So, right, right contentious right. as it is, right. So that is that is our motivation, and and that is our starting point. We are going to assume that uh, our listeners have already, uh, well, heard episode thirty-two, and so this is uh, addenda. Um, I think. We uh, we were pretty clear last week on the notion of music. Um, one thing wet that uh, we we might need to clear up, and I think the conversation on the blog has reflected that there is some some lack of clarity on this, is what exactly do we mean, or do you mean, <laughs> <laughs> when you use the word emotion? Um, that that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people and it can range from uh, icky things that that um, I'm a little alarmed by all the way all the way to you know wonderful rosy things that other people seek out actively so what do we mean well um, when I'm using the term I'm talking chiefly about good feelings um, during a worship service, so you're singing, um, you're singing a song, whether it's a hymn or a praise chorus, whether you've got just a, a pipe organ or whether you have a full rock band with a smoke machine, you're singing the song with a big group of feel uh, people, and you start to feel warm in your chest, and, and I think there's a real tendency to equate that warm feeling with the presence of God, and that's that's in in particular is what I'm coming down against. When when I talk about emotion and worship, 
not having that feeling, but equating it with the presence of God. Okay. Um, one thing, as I was reading down through the thread, I did notice um, one one comment that you made in particular, which is um, the uh, well the 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 frankly uh, biological aspects of emotion. Yeah, and I, t- I talked, I have, um, I'll, I'll just come out of the closet here, so to speak, and, and, and say that I, I have bipolar disorder, and so I am probably more attuned to emotion than other people, and, and I, I, don't, I don't say that to be arrogant, it's just for me to maintain my, literally, to maintain my sanity, I have to be aware of what my emotions are doing. Because otherwise, they, they will carry me away and I'm in trouble. Now, that uh, that likely strongly influences the way I feel about emotion, no doubt. But uh, my, my point in bringing up the biological stuff is there are medications I can take if I get manic that will flatline me, where I won't have any emotion at all. It's, it's, it's a very uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling, but in, in some ways it's better than mania. And so the question is... If I went to a church service while on one of these medications, I wouldn't feel anything at all. And I I find it rather disturbing that I, I find the idea rather disturbing that that would mean that the presence of God was not there because mm-hmm. I didn't feel warm about the heart. Right. That you could in some way medicate out the presence of the Holy Spirit. Or medicate it in, frankly. Well, that's yeah. I mean, and and of course, there's there's been lots of religious groups throughout history that have suggested medicating in the presence of God. Oh, Rastafarians and uh, Native American use of peyote, to name a couple off the top of my head. Sure, sure. Native American use of peyote, and also uh, pretentious white guy use of peyote. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a that's a we can talk about Orientalism in another podcast. Yeah. Um, so the... so my point is the emotions are so strongly biological. They're biological in a way that I, I understand the intellect is also biological, but the emotions are biological in a way the, the intellect is not. The, the intellect, at least to some extent, manages to stand outside of that, and, and the emotions don't. And, and I, I can say this with some confidence because my biology strongly determines my emotions. And in fact, whenever I begin feeling too good or too bad, I have to look at myself and say, this is the disease. And, and I mean, that's what bi- having bipolar, that's what having bipolar disorder is about. That's how you have to live. Right. There, there's, there's, just no, there's just no way around it. Either that or you get carried away with it. Right. Um, uh, I had a um, I, I have a friend from from college who was diagnosed um, also diagnosed bipolar, and we would have conversations about it. And uh, you know, I was you know, of course, I was very curious, like, how does it feel exactly? And um, one of the things that he talked about was uh, thinking about thinking about emotions as uh, in the way that you would think about your thermometer. And that his thermometer was just kind of louder than others, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and that that was that was uh, that was useful to me to to think even about my own. Um, I do I did want to um, want to pursue one thing when we talk about emotion. 
Um, what we don't mean are things uh, things like like love per se, or what what we you know good things that we desire and have good uh, good intentions for. Um, which well, these things... I think I think it's a major social problem that we even consider love an emotion, and I mean you can hear this from any any number of high-profile preachers, so I won't go too far into it. But I, I, I don't think love is primarily an emotion. I think emotions often accompany it, but love is really uh, gritting your teeth and uh, sticking to commitments a lot of the times. And there's there's nothing there's nothing emotionally gratifying about that. Well, uh, the the way I've the way I've thought about it is. Uh where um where i set uh, i like to use the word affections instead of emotions that that where i set my inf- where i set my affections my my intended love is uh is in some way going to set my emotions because my you know why do i feel fear because what i love is threatened why do i feel anger because what i love is threatened um, you know, all of all of these emotions that I have um, are, in a way, responses to um, to uh, you know perceived threats or perceived um, you know enjoyments of those things that I value. Um, so, so for me, emotion is emotion is the symptom, and uh, the question I ask myself is. If I'm if I'm feeling this particular emotion, whatever it might be, where are my affections set that I'm angry about this right now? You know, um, if I'm if I'm if my wife interrupts me while I'm you know surfing the internet and she's like, "Hey, can I check my Facebook?" and I gotta admit, I'm frequently irritated when that happens. Um, but the question I have to ask myself is, what is my affection set on? that this is the emotional response I've got in this moment. Yeah, and love in, in that is not feeling happy that your wife is interrupting you because you love her. Love there is letting her use your computer even though you, you don't want to. Right. And, well, and also um, looking back and saying, okay, set my affection on my wife, not on, you know, this particular, you know, you know, review of a movie that was, you know, made, you know, 40 years ago that I've just now found out about, um, you know, setting my affections for me in the right places. And then, you know, sometimes reluctantly, reluctantly, but, but usually eventually, um, being, being conscious about my affections, my emotions follow. Um, let's see. But I think that leads us to something uh, that you mentioned last week and uh, what you said the CWC guys brought up, which is um, last week you said you were a Calvinist enough to be suspicious of emotion, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and that they've also said that this, you know, the, the differences of opinion uh, could be a difference between Calvinism and between pietism. Uh, we did not unpack that last week. Would you care to do that? 
I will a little bit. I'll, I'll point out that the stereotype of the dour uh, Calvinist is to some extent accurate. Um, Calvinism tends to be a rather intellectual version of the faith. I don't think that should be a controversial statement. And I think it goes back beyond Calvin. I think it goes to all the way back to St. Augustine, who, if you read the Confessions, is very skeptical of the emotions he feels now at the same time. Yes, you get Augustine saying that you have made our hearts restless, and uh, until we until we rest in you, and and so there is an, an emotional component to that. Although I would say that goes deeper than feeling, that goes to mm-hmm. something about one's being, and I. So, uh, any anyway, yeah, Calvinism tends to be intellectual, often at the expense of emotion. So it makes sense that a Calvinist would say that. Uh, that doctrine is what's important in a in a church service rather than good good feelings. How does depravity fit in with that? Depravity means you can't trust anything about yourself, really. So doctrine is something external you can hold to, even if you have to come to it, you know, internally. Right. So, so that that makes sense as that makes sense as well. Well, I, I think consider considering that that you know. At least the T is something that all three of us have consensus on. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I would cite that when talking about the relationship between emotion and Calvinism. Um, you know, like I like I said earlier, uh, because I think of emotions as as symptoms of where of where my love is at a particular moment. Um, I know that I'm always setting my love on the wrong things. Oh yeah. And so, I, I I become suspicious of of of, emo, of my emotions very often because that it it draws to my attention the fact that my love is pointed in the wrong direction, and that if if I'm just seeking the the pleasurable feelings of good emotions, um, I'm almost inevitably going to do that by pointing my love in the direction of things that makes those those gratifying emotions readily achievable. Um, but those are very often the things that are not <laughs> not personally uh, the directions that, that, that I ought to be going. I, I'd like to talk historically for a moment about emotion and Protestant worship because I think yeah. it's I think it's odd and disturbing that so many evangelical congregations see emotion as kind of the ending point. Um, Evangelicalism, as you know, and as our listeners know, is largely a reaction against 19th century liberalism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One of the central tenets of liberalism, especially as formulated by uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, is that religion is emotion. Now, I'm oversimplifying, and I'm not an expert in Schleiermacher, uh, so if if you are and I'm offending I'm offending you, listener, please write in and tell me how I got it wrong. But nineteenth um, century liberalism is largely concerned with feelings, to to mm-hmm. to the extent, or, or to the uh, to the point where Schleiermacher says that religion is a feeling of absolute dependency. That even evangelicalism ostensibly rejects nineteenth century liberalism and yet holds on to this strong emphasis on feelings and emotions i think is a is a form of bad faith i i think i think they're not they're not paying attention to what they're supposedly rejecting mm-hmm. now well, the, I... the degree to which um 
modern day evangelicals are consciously rejecting 19th century liberalism is you know <laughs> at the very least up for debate. but uh but historically that's what evangelicals um are rejecting so mm -hmm. i i think that's something to consider dude you know well uh, one to what thing degree, that... to what degree is emotion liberalism in in sheep's clothing and i hate to use that term like it's a like it's the boogeyman yeah. but uh i guess well, I'm going I, to. <laughs> I will say though that um that pietism um the that that it it arose before that issue came out came about um and i i'm gonna have to i'm i'm relying on some dimly remembered history uh some of it i think i uh, remembered from our conversation with Kurt Skerritt's, which uh it it was a response to lutheran scholasticism the a um a very heady intellectual uh approach to to uh to lutheran christianity that uh seemed to leave out um both the notion of practical piety, but also the idea that one's um, one's emotions should be uh, should be direct should be engaged by um, one's Christianity. Um, sure. And so and so you'll have uh, you know uh, and and that that carries over into the Wesleyan tradition. Um, you know, Wesley was was uh, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the story was an encounter with Moravians on uh, on a ship uh, voyage um, from America back to England, and he was wondering about um, why have I been a missionary uh, or a circuit riding preacher for you know for all of this time, and yet I still feel dead inside. And he met these uh, he met these Pietists on the boat and he thought aha <laughs> that's what it is um it was only in my head and so you still hear that language very frequently people talking about head knowledge versus heart knowledge and things like that um i, I think there is a very strong strain of that um 18th century pietism that when you mix the two up together the 18th century pietism and then the 19th century evangelicalism um I don't know that it, it it maybe mm, I I'm I'm not really sure how how to fit that those things together, but I think we've got different DNA bouncing around in this critter. Sure, and I I shouldn't simplify it as as though we're all on one single line, going mm -hmm. back and forth on it because I, I I mean obviously it's much more complicated than that. I I did want to add add two things. Um, number one, I think the I, I, I get nervous anytime somebody starts talking about their heart. Mm -hmm. I prefer, I, I agree that there's something beyond the intellect. And I, I believe, I, I agree that there's something important in our Christian walk beyond the intellect. I prefer to define that outside of the emotions and define it as, as being. I mean, this should come as no surprise to anyone who's uh, talked to me or read my uh, posts or, or listens to this podcast. I mean, it's a, it's the existential answer. Um, there, there's something in our being that calls out to God that, that is not necessarily emotions. It's a it's a deeply felt um, need that, that I, I, I think you could put in the soul rather than in the heart so as not to confuse it with those emotions. So I prefer... 
if we're going to use Wesley's terms, I, I prefer to say head knowledge versus soul knowledge or being knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a helpful distinction. There are things you have to know in your being. And that's where um, that's where I think the neo-Orthodox folks who get a lot of bad press uh, in, in the evangelical community. Of course, when I say neo-Orthodox, I don't mean the Orthodox Church. I'm, I'm talking about Karl Barth and Emil Bruner and, and folks like that, basically the existential evangelicals. And, and yes, I'm comfortable calling them evangelicals. Bart considered himself an evangelical, but um, the, the existential evangelicals from the middle half of the last century, I think they get this largely right when they say that the Bible becomes the word of God when you apply it to your life. And I, I think that's a, a statement that can be misunderstood as meaning that the Bible is not important in itself. But I think the way to look at that is they're also reacting to that 19th century liberalism where emotion is king, the feeling of dependency is king. And they're saying, yes, you need that, but you also need the it, you need it to be the Word of God. You, you know, it needs to be the the Bible. So you you get there. I think a, a helpful mixture of doctrine of of biblical revelation, and if not emotion, at least this being I'm talking about mm-hmm. it, it, this this connection between the two. I know I, you I, probably won't go uh, along with all of that, David. Um, and, and you you know I get nervous <laughs> when Bart talks about the Bible too, just so our, our listeners um, our listeners know, I do hold to inerrancy and the rest of it. I, I am a I am an evangelical, in ways that Bart probably was not. But right, um, well I, I I think part of a uh, part of our project is is looking at different thinkers and trying to and seeing what what can we what can we respect and what they say even if. Uh, in, in other things, uh, we, we decline. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what, it, there, there's a word, um, which is, a, it, it's often in, in English works that I've, that I've read on the subject talked about, des, uh, the, the word is translated as desire. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about it in, in his book, Surprised by Joy, but it's um, German word S E H N S U C H T Zainsucht. Um, is that is that something that's familiar to you, Michael? No, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that concept. Okay. Um, I, th- I when when you talk about a, a feeling in your being, um, I I think about the way. Um, oh, it would be right. You said. You said Zaim S S S E S E H N S U C H T. I, I thought, um, I, yeah, I, I, you know, being is is S E I M, right? Anyway, sorry, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I'm I, I I'm I'm relying on on memories of things right now, but in in uh, Lewis's uh, surprised by joy, he talks about um, there being these desires deep in our being that um, that God is the object of those desires. And we we chase other things because in some way they remind us of they remind us of that desire, but but ultimately, you know, it, you know, and 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 part of part of we part of that our response to to those things that remind us of what of the object of our desire is a, a feeling of joy, which is more than just pleasure. Yes, more than and more than happiness. Right, and more than a feeling, more than a feeling, and so we seek 
you know, we seek out these things that were part of the experiences in which we felt the joy, but that joy doesn't come again. You know, you listen to the piece of music 10 times in a row and the emotion is gone. You're like, where did it go? Um, I, I, I think that's that some of the some of those ideas may be useful in talking about emotion and worship as well, well. I think I think we're also flashing back to that passage from the confessions I quoted earlier about our hearts being restless till they find rest in God. I think yes. I, I think that's that's largely the same thing. And I would put that restlessness not in the heart, but in the being or the soul. Mm-hmm. The the core. <laughs> Yeah, however you want to think about that. Something deeper than emotion, though. Right. Something that touches who you are as a person. I, I, which I, I would say that emotion emotion is in that mix, but it's kind of at the top level as a as a signal or as a symptom of of these other things that are happening below the surface, um, and therefore, you know, should should be subjected to scrutiny and not seen as ends in themselves. Um, I will, I will say that, you know, when I worship, you know, and I'm, I, you know, I'm going to a Presbyterian church, um, everyone there, you know, we're all, we're all Calvinists. It is far from dour, however, um, we, the theology is dour, but the people aren't. (laughs) Well, I don't know that the theology is entirely dour either. Um, you know, with, in in the song, um, you know, it's it is primarily about about God, about God's character, about His love for us. Um, if if it is if I am in these songs, it is as um, it is as a sinner who is in need of grace. Um, what is uh, useful, or, or the the way that I interact with that though, is 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 that I, I, I've internalized that. And so I begin. I begin the service being reminded of God's greatness, and of my, um, you know, my my stained, flawed, you know, f- you know, finitude in the face of that. Um, we then come to a corporate, um, a, t- a time of corporate confession of sin, and then after that is over, you know, we listen to readings, uh, we listen to the sermon. And then after the sermon is done, that's when we have uh, we have communion. And so for me, the, the each service um, becomes emotions are part of the experience, but that's because the entire service has been spent in reminding me of what I am in myself and then what I am in relation to God and then the greatness of grace so that by the time I come to communion uh, I, f- I feel emotions but they're emotions that, that are coming because my, my affections have been have been redirected towards my God oh interesting and, and as I raise so the worship service is a realigning of priorities yes um, yeah what, what happens is I'm I'm focused. I, I I feel like I've I've washed the last week off of me, and I'm focused in again on on all of those things that you know that I and my in my fallible self should have been focused on all the time, and and each week, 
I feel like, you know, the Lord lets me come to his table again and is, is you know, as, you know, as grimy and as scarred and as, as, as you know, as much failure, a failure as I was in the week before that, I get to raise the cup, you know, and I raise it with everyone else in the congregation. I raise it with all other Christians living and dead. And, and so having, having done that, I, I leave and it, it is a profoundly emotional experience for me, but I don't seek it out because it's emotional. Yeah, they're they're kind of a by the they're kind of a byproduct. The service itself isn't designed to provoke your emotions, even though that happens, and uh, and you don't judge the failure or success of the worship service by whether you feel that warm feeling in your heart. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just just to just to I mean, the last hymn that we sang was, um, you know, that old hymn, "Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross." You know, in the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Um, I mean, it's an old, it's an old hymn. You know, I, I grew up singing this. I never thought about it, but having, having finished the service, I sing the hymn and I think about the words. And so when I get to the last verse and sing near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever. I'm actually getting a little wet eyed. You know, me, the Calvinist at the Presbyterian Church, is getting wet-eyed because of this old hymn that I've sung a million times, but it's because my affections have been realigned, um, and and I feel like my heart is directed in the right place, and so now my emotions have fallen, uh, have fallen in line with the direction they should have been pointing anyway. That's a my, really interesting way of thinking about it, David. I really like that. I mean, as you know. Presbyterian worship services are fairly precisely calibrated. Mm-hmm. We're we're not high church, but we're closer to high church than a lot of Protestants. But structured church, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very structured. The I don't I don't know if the PCA does this or not, but the PCUSA has the scripted prayers and uh, everything is everything. Now that I think about it, is there in order to redirect your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that by the end of the the church, my my thoughts, my intentions, my emotions, and my being are all pointed true north. You know, as as they ought to be, um, and that that's that's you know, if I want to put it crassly, that's what I get out of church, is this um, you know, this weekly reorientation of of my life, reminding that you know I'm. That, that this is real that when I when I take the bread um, you know as I as I feel it in my mouth as I feel the taste of it and the texture of it that Christ's death and resurrection is as real as that tactile feeling in my mouth and that his bloodshed for me is as real as you know the the cool you know the cool moisture of the of you know of the wine as it pours down my throat you know it, there's a combination there of doctrine and emotion. Right. And that's fun with me too. You know. <laughs> and you know my my point is not to eliminate emotion altogether. It's just make sure it's not the center. Right. I th- I uh, think your model of of what church should look like is a is a very good one, David. Well, thank you, sir. Um it's not it's not my model. It's uh you know, the the church that I go to that's 
you know that that's how they do it and it it works for me uh, i do think though that's that's something that we do need to consider is that you and i we have particular personality types right um you know we talked about uh eagles landing last week and talked about casting crowns and all the rest of that my mother-in-law absolutely loves that church and when she goes there she worships because she's a she's she's attuned to that and we talk after the service and you know you know she can you know we we talk about the sermon we did, you know we don't talk about just sort of generally generically how exciting it was for me um sometimes that service strikes a false note because my because I'm I'm not ready I'm not ready for that feeling yet that feeling that the song is imputing to me <laughs> but some of those people are right so that there are many different kinds of churches in many different styles of worship um, if for no other reason than that I'm on board with that um, I do think all of them should should strive to ascribe glory to God instead of um, provoke emotions not to make too much of a false dichotomy there but um, yeah I'm, I, I certainly don't want to canonize my own taste I mean Obviously, of the three of us, I'm the only one who goes to a, a church without some sort of uh, popular ensemble, shall we say. <laughs> I'm the only one with a traditional worship service, and I prefer that, but uh, I understand everybody doesn't. I understand people like praise choruses and don't like hymns, and that's fine, too. I, I certainly I certainly don't want to prescribe what sort of music you should listen to, but uh, I, I do think it should uh, it should point you in the right direction. Right. Rather than uh, rather than give you a warm feeling, right? And those are two different things, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I I think when you're when you're hard when when you're well, I'll use the word I use the word hard again. But when you're when you're being when your will when your affections when your thoughts are pointed in the direction that they should be, as Augustine said, when you know when they're pointed at uh, the one who should be our desire anyway um i think the the emotions the emotions follow often often they will follow sometimes you know sometimes that realignment is itself an act of an act of submission and they are not warm fuzzy emotions sometimes the realignment um does result in emotions but they aren't the 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 kinds of happy emotions that we like to that we would like to think are part of worship sometimes that emotion is and now i am broken i am loathsome it's well, the uh, sinners in the hands of an angry god emotion well i think that's a i think that's a profoundly proper emotion oh, when sure. faced with when faced with certain truths but um, um i i will point out from my experience, the churches that are big on creating an atmosphere of emotion are not big on creating an atmosphere of that particular emotion. Yeah. Which is, I mean, a, a biblical one. In fact, let's, um, I, I think we can, I think that actually is a good segue because you wanted to talk about Psalm 22 and, and its emotional content. And Psalm 22 is in large part about feeling loathsome. 
Right. Uh, well, I mean, this is this is the psalm that that Christ invokes on the cross. Um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Um, I read it in the King James because that's the the yeah the King James is what's embedded in my mind. And the I, Psalms sound better in the King James. They we had do. a that was a, we had another listener. Who, uh, who who said that he reads the Bible in some other translation, but he always reads the Psalms and the King James. I liked that. Yeah. Well, I I I, I agree. Um, a, a lot of times, I th- I think this this particular moment in the Gospels is is I I think sometimes misunderstood. Um, very often you'll find a footnote that links it back to Psalm 22, but usually it's read as if Jesus is somehow speaking these words. But without without context without reference to the context of Psalm 22, except as in some way a prophecy of what's happening in the moment. Which, if if you think about that humanly, that's that seems oddly inauthentic. That a a dying man in excruciating pain would would shout out a cross reference to his experience. And by the way, this is happening now. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I like to think about, you know, that this particular Psalm is, uh, it begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's, that's the first part. Um, you know, that's the first verse, second verse. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the si- in the night season and am not silent. Um, but if you continue reading, uh, what you find is, ye that fear the Lord, praise him, all ye to the seed of Jacob, glorify him, and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel, for he hath not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor hath neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. And so that, that psalm starts with, uh, it perhaps starts with this human emotion of, uh, of low, lowliness, in it, but it ends with uh, ascribing glory to God. Well, and and more than that, it begins with, um, I'm in pain and I feel deserted, and then it, it it goes through that experience of pain. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people, um, and then the, the everyone is laughing at him, saying he trusted on the Lord who would deli- that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But then verse nine is the turn. This is like the volta in a Petrarchan sonnet. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. Um, thou, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. And it continues in that vein. The, 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 you know, the, the tenor shifts so that by the end, by the end of the, of the psalm, the psalmist is talking about... Um, declaring God's righteousness to a people that ha- that shall be born that he has done this and what is the this that he's done well it's it's the deliverance of the afflicted uh, so that the, the psalmist in his pain begins with that pain and the emotion of it um, and thinking about God in a particular way from the perspective of the situation he's in but then as he reconsiders um, what he finishes with, is a different emotion, still an emotion, but a different emotion, that is uh, is in a way a, it, it's it's a resolution. 
he's he's you know as as Calvin says at the beginning of the Institutes, and I paraphrase, um, he's looked at God and then he's looked back at himself and so sees more truly about himself, um, ha having done that. So uh, I I think we should re you know maybe maybe look at what Christ is when Christ says this on the cross. Um, is he just invoking that first word verse, or is he invoking the whole psalm? Um, That's a good point. He, he certainly wouldn't have had time to uh, recite the whole thing. When he... <laughs> well, it, it is it is very true, and I've 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 heard a lot of um, you know in sermons and various other things in church, and even in uh, a particular course that comes to mind that that take Christ's recitation of the first the first phrase of the first verse as if that's all he meant and that he didn't mean the rest and so that you know so that God the Father is literally deserting God the Son which um, if we're going to hold the Nicene Creed as our standard of heresy I'm pretty sure that's dividing the persons or sorry dividing the substance but it's, it's a terribly common idea in in Christian theology that that that, that God the Father turned his back on God the Son. Yeah, well, that's that's the only verse that it's based on. It's true, it, yeah, I didn't even think about that. And it's a, it, it's a reading of the verse that assumes that Jesus is quoting a line from a poem and ignoring the whole poem, which he knew. He knew the whole thing. And if, if you look at the, <laughs> if you look at the Psalms, they... Many of them begin by talking about the person and and the the psalmist's emotions, and they end with very specific statements about who God is, or what God has done, or what God what what the psalmist hopes God is going to do. And so it's important when we're adapting the psalms into music for our churches that we uh, we keep the whole thing in mind instead of just the beginning part. And Doctor Wetmore, in his book that I talked about last week and in my post. He he brings up the example of as the deer pants for the water. We all we all know that song, right? As the deer pants for anyway, yeah, we all know it. it's a it's a nice song, except that it leaves out the last half of the psalm, mm -hmm. which I don't have open in front of me, so and I I can't recite it. But um, it, it leaves out the last half of the psalm where the psalmist is not talking about his emotion, not talking about how much he needs God. He's talking about who God is. Mm -hmm. Well. I would not say I would not say that there's that there's no emotion there. I mean, oh know, no, certainly there's emotion there. Yeah, certainly there's emotion there. But the point is, in the psalm, that's not all there is. The right. psalm doesn't stop with "Here's my here's how I feel about you, God." Right. It, and, it stops with "Here's who you are," and and, and there's a, there's a huge difference between that between mm -hmm. those between those two things. Well, I I think that's one of the reasons why um, why looking at the psalms. In thinking about our emotion and worship, um, is 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 very useful because we see in this one also in Psalm seventy three, which is one of my favorites, the Psalm of Asaph. Uh, we see that same kind of beginning with authentic, unpleasant human emotions about unpleasant, you know, bad, painful experiences. Um, in on the earth, and then the psalmist actually meditating on the implications of his experience as he perceives it on theology. I mean, in in Psalm seventy three, um, you know, Asaph is looking at wicked people, and and seeing that that they are successful, 
and is actually feeling bitter about this. Uh, he, he says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Um, he said, verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Uh, for all the day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. I mean, he, he's looking at his life and seeing his pain and the pleasure of the wicked and saying, I, I've been good for no reason. Right. But then halfway through the psalm and sit, verse 17, we again have that, you know, almost like the, the Volta and the Petrarchan sonnet. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And he ends with, uh, well, actually, one, one of the, I think, one of the most simultaneously emotional, but at the same time, precisely descriptive theology verse 25 of psalm 73 whom have i in heaven but thee and there is none upon earth that i desire beside thee oh interesting and that's a fan i mean that that is you know i think that's where our 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 worship should lead us you know saying with asaph you know as he says in verse 26 god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever but he he gets to that emotion having first acknowledged the rot in his heart and having worked it through the truth of, of who God is and who he is and having realigned himself. You know, when I, when I talk about my worship experience at the beginning, it, it's, you know, I, I've thought about that. You know, I only thought about that after having looked at Psalm 73 in particular. Well, and, and there's about, a, there's a conquering in that. There's a conquering of emotion in that song and it replaces it. Um, it, it starts with him being downcast and bitter, and then what what conquers it is understanding, right? And and with that understanding comes there is none that I desire on earth beside thee. Um, but but you need that understanding first to have proper right. emotion, right? That you know that I went into the into the sanctuary, and then I understood. Um, I, 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 that's one of the reasons why Psalm 73 and then also Psalm 22 are, are, are two of my favorite, um, because I think they deal with both the dark side of human emotion and the proper place of emotion and worship in, um, I think pr pretty much pretty, pretty parallel ways. Well, uh, David, one of the other things we hinted at last week without actually getting to, and we kind of made a joke about it, but it's it's something serious, is the Jesus <laughs> is my boyfriend attitude toward worship music. Uh, this was your big thing, so I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you talk about it, and then uh, then I might add something. Uh, Jesus is my boyfriend, and particularly in particular, you you cited uh, in the secret in the quiet place. Yes, which yeah. if you didn't know it was about Jesus, it would be a song about having sex in a gazebo. Well, in the def in the defense of that, this this the second verse um, pushing pushing every hindrance aside. Yeah, it uses a little bit more New Testament language. Yeah, that's that's some Pauline language. Um, now the first one in the secret in the in in the quiet place. I, mean, I, I reference Saint John of the Cross uh, and his Dark Night of the Soul. Um, and I believe Joseph mentioned uh, in the comments, he mentioned the Song of Solomon. Yes, which he reads as a, as an allegory for Christ and the church, which I don't. 
So, well, so I don't, I don't have to, uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, if you don't read that as an allegory, you don't have to respond to it being Jesus is my boyfriend. Well, in, I guess in, in his defense, that particular allegory of the Song of Solomon is quite venerable. Um, oh yeah, no, there's a rich tradition. I believe Augustine held that as well, but uh, I don't. Right. Well, I, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not attempting to, to persuade it. Uh, to persuade um, because of it, but uh, there are there are songs that 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 we sing in church that that make that implicit. Um, he's called me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. I remember singing that in VBS, and that's a reference to the Song of Solomon. Um, the uh, let's see, there was a, a a hymn that we sang yesterday. In fact. Um, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Hallelujah. Uh, you know, the chorus, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Well, the last verse, uh, Jesus, I do now receive him more than all in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. How many times, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's not the only hymn I've ever heard that in. But that particular verse is uh that's that's song of solomon chapter 2 verse 16 my beloved is mine and i am his um yeah, that's true uh you know the, the, this no I'm, I'm i certainly didn't mean to suggest that, that joseph no. made that up uh oh, i know I, i've always found that a rather baffling um to, to suggest that the song of solomon isn't about sex has always seemed rather strange to me but um it does save, make sense we can save it, that for our inevitable show yeah. about uh about the Kama Sutra. Yeah. <laughs> when we run out of all the other books. <laughs> Just be glad uh, it's not a video podcast. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, w I will say one thing, though. It does make sense if, in, in the context of uh, patristic and early medieval, the early medieval church, in which celibacy was seen yeah. as... Uh, the height of holiness and the model yep. of, of, of what the life should be. And so what do we do with a quite sexy book of the Bible? I mean, it's holy writ and it's, and it's, you know, it's hot stuff. So what do you do with it? Well, they, they allegorized it. Um, but what that, it, what that allegory ended up doing was becoming a very fruitful source of imagery for not public worship, but for personal worship, for private worship. Good segue, David. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, or thank you. Because this is a uh, this is a distinction I made in my post, and I believe we made it last week on mm. the uh, on the show as well. The distinction between public and private worship. So why is that so important? Well, because I I, I think the the kind of Song of Solomon emotions, uh, or the the Song of Solomon illusions. Uh, if if we trace you know kind of the history of them in in Christian Christian verse, you'll see them you know cropping up in uh, in the Christian mystics, uh, people like Saint John of the Cross. You see uh, allusions to that kind of thing in um, that uh, well our English our English mystic Julian of Norwich and our English wannabe mis uh, mystic Marjorie Kemp. Um, that 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 particular notion that that Christ is Christ is the beloved of my soul, uh, Christ is my beloved and 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 I am His beloved, and that that 
that relationship um, in very romantic imagery was was fruitful in the personal piety of the Christian Middle Ages. Uh, it was one of the ways that um, uh, I, I guess I guess that we would say, you know, the, 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 these days when we talk about people having personal relationships with Jesus um, in the Middle Ages, that was that was how that personal relationship was conceived. As the um, well, as Jesus is my boyfriend, but more than that, Jesus is the Jesus is is my husband, and I am you know I am his bride, and so all of the uh, the tenderness and union and also passion uh, that goes into that um, was uh, pretty commonly in the Middle Ages expressed um, about that relationship. Um, it may it may come across as as icky <laughs> when we look at it and I, quite frankly I do feel icky when Marjorie Kemp obsesses about handsome Jesus um, but um, she is a person in her context just as much as we are people in ours and her culture handed her a handsome Jesus and said this is the husband of your soul and she said all right <laughs> I, li I like him better than my actual husband who she then tried to convince that uh, that yeah they needed to be celibate now. I'm sure he loved that. Yeah, that that's yeah that was not a, a good point in her in her biography. Jesus is the other man. Yeah, yeah, he was he was literally in Marjorie Kemp's relationship. But why is that appropriate for private worship and not for public worship? Because I I, I think it's I think it gets at that um, that. It's it's a distinction that we're not terribly good at in Christendom. Um, the fact that that our faith is simultaneously this corporate thing that we hold with um, with the body of Christ, not only visible in our own congregation, but with all all the members of the body universal, living and dead. Right? That it's this it's this corporate thing, but it is also a deeply personal thing, and. Most most traditions that I've seen seem to focus on one or the other, um, but uh, I, I guess I guess that's that's what I would get at is is you know that's a way of expressing your your kind of your your personal and um, your personal emotional engagement with Christ that I I, I don't I don't know that it's it's as help is as helpful to talk about that. In relation to you know the corporate side of Christianity, if that makes sense. Well, and uh, I, I would say, as Americans and as evangelicals, we tend to be uncomfortable with corporate worship to begin with, right? We, uh, I, I think, there's an unspoken assumption in, in a lot of churches that we we come to church, but really we could do this on our own. <laughs> don't don't you think? I mean. We we taught you you told me last week that part of the reason I was snubbed at the the church I I've, I visited was that large people come to large churches to remain invisible, which is just a way of gathering together without actually gathering together, right? Yeah, I I, I think I think you've got I think you do have a point there. Um, you know, um, also, if if I may if I may say the arrangement of many services means that um, at least 
my 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 idea of a worship service that that realigns your affections um i would have less a problem closing with that kind of uh, a song with that kind of imagery. Yes. At closing with a song with that kind of imagery. I'm not ready for that at the beginning of the service. A- absolutely. I I think that's a that's a very good point. Yeah, I'm not ready for and all I do I honor you or I you know, I love you more than everything else or whatever. I'm not I'm not ready for for that at the beginning. Um at the beginning when I sing that all I'm thinking about is <sighs> all right how did i drop the ball this week but i because... mean even even <laughs> uh, m- most services start with one of the kind of cheerful uh doctrinally empty hymns or uh or praise chorus i mean typically typically the hymn services will start with uh, man which man which we adore thee man which man which we adore thee fun and easy and sloppy too Make tonight a Madwich night. Well, uh, I, I, I don't know what, the, I mean, maybe that's kind of like the, you know, the or, the light hors d'oeuvre that starts off the meal. I I don't know. but A Madwich is a meal in itself, David. Uh, well, that's true. Which I'm now imagining tiny Madwiches on toothpicks, but <laughs> that's completely beside the point. Well, have we said everything we want to say? I, I hope maybe we've cleared some things up. Or, you know, possibly, you know, kicked some more hornet's nests. You never know. It's true, although I, I must say I'm getting tired of talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I uh, well. uh, the singing has always been my least favorite part of church services. I, I, I will admit that outright. Uh, wh- whether it's... Whether it's praise choruses or hymns, it is typically my least favorite part. And I like was... to sing. I mean, I sing in my car. I, I, I mentioned. I mean, I was in a rock band for two, three years. I, I, uh, I don't have anything against music, uh, but for whatever reason, the the music portion of the church service has always been my least favorite part. I like the sermons and I like the prayers. Yeah, I got, I got, I got to agree with you on that one. Um. So, I mean, maybe that's, that is uh, another thing that we can say to our audience. Um, frankly, I'm a curmudgeon. You know? Um, oh, I'm sure anybody who's listened to us for <laughs> a few episodes knows we're not... Uh, none of us are terribly cuddly. All right. So, um, you know, don't, don't, get, don't get terribly upset that, um, you know, that Eeyore is not always about the happy times. Um, you know, because... Because that's frequently what I am, though I try not to indulge in it publicly so much. As a final thought, I wanted to. Um, by the way, I'm bipolar, which means uh, half the time I'm Eeyore and half the time I'm Tigger. But <laughs> as a as a closing thought, I wanted to uh, I, I wanted to encourage our our listeners to think of worship as something including but more than music. Mm, I, yes. I think that's one of the big dangers of the, um, especially of the praise chorus churches. I, I must admit, is is when they say they're going to worship, it means they're going to sing, and then everything else is something else. In fact, everything in the service is worship, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And I, I make the point in my post that everything we do is supposed to be worship, which is what mm. Paul is talking about when he talks about living sacrifices in Romans twelve. Right. 
Well, so, worship is is ascribing to God the honor that is His due. So, so, so the, yes, the music does that ideally. Um, right. Well, uh, in 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 the music we speak it. Um, we do it by describing who God is and what He's done, um, and also by telling the truth about ourselves in relationship to Him, and by um, singing about uh, you know the commitment that we should have uh, to Him. But if that's not also followed up, uh, not also accompanied with a, uh, a dutiful attentiveness to the word and what God is speaking to us through it. Um, then you've got a rock concert or, or I right. mean, a classical concert or whatever kind of concert you want. Right. You know, joy, joyful giving, um, you know, prayerfully joining in with, with prayers, uh, you know, as they're said by 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 whomever, which I got to say that that you know that was always a challenge for me, is you know I always be like, okay, Deacon, what's his face? Um, oh, that's serious. why the scripted prayer is so nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you know exactly when it's going to be over. <laughs> yeah, but that is that is one way in which I've I've had to you know I've had to be skeptical of my emotions in worship, is mm-hmm. those those things that I am impatient with. Yep, that is an emotion in worship. And yep. I need to I need to scrutinize that. Um, why am you know where is that particular emotion coming from? Um, why am I so desirous that this man who's speaking to God at the moment on my behalf should keep it short? <laughs> yep. Anyway, I, I think about. Um, I, I went to a Christian camp like a lot of us did when I was I was a kid, and I remember the. Uh, guy who, who ran it said the most important part of a church service is, is the worship the music because you, you know the sermon's not as important as that and the uh, the prayers aren't as important as that and even as a kid because like i said i've never really cared for music in, in worship services but when i when i was even when i was a kid i was like there's something seriously seriously wrong with this this is this is this is you know your, your priorities are messed up the, the music is great. The music needs to be there. I agree. It, it should be something we do. It, it's it's important, but to to say that it's what matters and we should pick our churches based on um, who who can whip us into an emotional frenzy. Excuse me. I'll just uh, stay home and watch uh, Bruce Springsteen concerts, but because yeah. that's going to do it for me way better than any praise band. Right. Right. In well, some cases, I, there's more doctrinal content too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I guess you know, if if I want to, if I want to end this episode with any statement from me, it's uh, we need to be going to we need to be going to to church to be repolarized, um, not not to get a particular feeling, regardless of what what the source of that is, whether it's just kind of a group high or a I just heard awesome music high or whatever, but it, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, 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 you know, you should feel something in worship, but that feeling, that feeling needs to come along with a reorientation of, of your thoughts and of your will and of your affections, um, and rise out of it. And for goodness sakes, feel free to listen to your, uh, in the secrets and yes lords yes lords in your car or at home or what have you uh, enjoy um yes that, that's and realize fine and that legitimate yeah and realize that you're doing so along with yeah pretty much the entire medieval church yep so. and, and no problem with that <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't like those songs but you're welcome to <laughs> all right 
Well, I I guess that wraps it up. What have we got on tap for next week? Uh, Nathan's classical music episode. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, anything else we need to do before we sign off? Uh, no, I don't think so. All right. Well, that has been 32.1, dear listeners. Um, so uh, if, if, if we've, uh, if we've again opened up a, a, a many more, many more cans of worms, um, you can notify us of such uh, by leaving uh, comments on the notes, on the show notes on our blog at christianhumanist.org uh, slash chb. Or you can send us an email at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Um, but I guess that's it for this week. So this is David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore and Absentia, wishing you all grand weeks. And uh, as Luther says, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be strong. Thank you.